Welcome to Choosing Leadership and this is another episode of the Visionary Voices series with your host Sumit Gupta. In this dynamic new series of episodes, I am bringing you thought-provoking conversations with visionary leaders who have reshaped industries, challenged norms and carved their own paths to success. In a world where leadership is a blend of art and science, where the ability to navigate uncertainty is as important as fostering innovation, we are diving headfirst into the minds of those who have mastered this craft. Join us as we discover the nuances of decision making and unveil the uncharted territories of visionary leadership. Get ready to choose leadership not just as a role, but as a conscious journey of growth, transformation and influence. In the interview, John, an expert with decades of experience in aviation safety, shares insights that extend beyond the cockpit, shedding light on transforming corporate cultures. He draws parallels between the airline industry's dramatic transformation towards safety and the leadership challenges faced by other fields. Emphasizing the need to treat employees as valuable team members, he advocates for open communication where every team member's information and insights matter. And just as the aviation industry turned from a myopic view to aiming for zero accidents, John calls on leaders to break away from old habits, actively engaging with the front lines and fostering a culture of responsibility and embracing change to ensure long-term success in any industry. Hi, John. Welcome to the Choosing Leadership Podcast. Good morning, Shilad. Good to be here. It's a pleasure. In fact, I cannot show or tell you how big it, it is a pleasure to have you here with us today. And I'm sure everybody who's listening to this will love this conversation. But before we do that, right, can you do a very small introduction of who you are and what do you do today? Yes. The name, full name is John J. Nance. That's what I use on my books. And I, I've had a number of professions. I'm still the aviation analyst for ABC television in the United States. And I'm an attorney as well, although not in really active practice. I keep my license active down in the state of Texas. And I have been an airline pilot for two different airlines over time. Retired from Alaska Airlines, which is headquartered in Seattle, Washington and also a U.S. Air Force pilot for many years and still a lieutenant colonel in the reserves. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing that distinguished career of yourself. And can you share a bit more about your work, especially with the airline safety and then now moving on to why do our healthcare and medical system? Yes, absolutely. It was a strange bedfellow situation because I, being an Air Force officer and pilot, was very well aware in the late 70s, early 80s, that to get into the safety field in the Air Force was a backwater. That was a career ender. And yet nowadays, that's completely opposite. It wasn't a matter of planning out a career. It was a matter of getting involved, having written my first book about the collapse of my first airline, one called Braniff International, which failed on May 12th of 1982 at about 4.34 in the afternoon. But I remember it well. There was a reason for that, and that led to my first book. But the second book, which was spawned by concerns over the safety of the airline system under deregulation, is probably my most important work. It was called Blind Trust, and it got me into a position where a phone call came through, probably 1986, 87, from a gentleman who was the medical director of a medical insurance company that insured hospitals. And Dr. Eric Knox was his name. And he said, I've been reading your book called Mind Trust. And I'm in a hotel room in Boston. And I just had to find your number and call you because you need to come talk to my people. I remember telling Doc, I don't know anything about medicine. I'm, I'm just a consumer. I, my expertise has become 
aviation safety and airline safety. And he said, oh, you don't understand. He said, everything that you guys have been through in, in aviation and all the changes that you've made are exactly what we've got to do in medicine. And we're 30 years behind you. And boy, was he correct about that. I've spent the last almost 30 years now trying to translate this, these human factor elements from aviation and from nuclear power generation, for that matter, to the medical profession. So that's been an ongoing situation. And really what it comes down to, and this is the element that startles me so much because it's applicable to any human endeavor, literally any human endeavor. What we've discovered in aviation was that 95% of our accidents, our fatal accidents, were a result of human failure. Not pilot error as such, although that certainly can be involved. That's what I call professional discretionary error. But it was mostly being human beings and failing at times. And what we had built that system on, which is precisely what medical has built the system on worldwide, is the expectation of perfect performance 100% of the time by human beings, which is virtually impossible. Recognizing that in the 80s and turning it around and say, if we can't get rid of human error, then we better start building buffers to absorb the errors that we can't get rid of. That was the beginning of the renaissance in aviation safety, which has brought us to the point now where we have about 94,000 flights over the world every day, commercial flights on which any of us could buy a ticket and almost nothing ever goes wrong. Comparatively, if there's a tiny percentage in the United States, we have not had a fatal accident, airline accident for almost 12 years, not counting Asiana in San Francisco, which we talk about. That was a foreign crew and Basically, there were no pilots in that cockpit. They were systems operators, and that's another story. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, John, for sharing. And one of the first things that we learn as human beings is gravity, right? That we cannot fly. And at the same time, seeing a plane through the sky, I don't think anything could be more scary unless you see the stats, unless you see, realize that it is actually the safest way to travel. Can you share more about what has the airline industry done to make that the safest way, and then how that can be translated, as you said, or as you were mentioning, to any other field where human beings are involved. There are several components of this that are fascinating because they're a little bit obscure to the average individual looking in from the outside and from corporate life too. First of all, it's the recognition, as I say, that human beings are incapable of 100% perfection 100% of the time. And no matter how much you yell and scream as a manager or a leader, you're not going to be able to transcend that completely. Now, we can certainly get to the point, as we've done in aviation, of minimizing the number of errors that become serious. But at the end of the day, you've got to have a systemic ability to absorb the errors that are still going to be there. That's why we don't want to have less than or fewer than two pilots in a cockpit and have them equally capable of handling the airplane at any given point in time. That's why you don't want to have a situation in which there's a pilot, for instance, who sees something wrong and reports it and nothing is done. That is, that is an anathema to basically mm-hmm. aviation safety, the way we know it today. And the other thing too, and this is so important, we have a, an organization that is one of many of them around the world called the National Transportation Safety Board. There are many great safety boards around the world. The, the, the British have one world-class one, or so do the Dutch and Amsterdam. But the thing is, what we have learned to do in accident investigation is start off by saying, we don't care about blame. Blame is for the lawyers. They can figure that out later. We don't care about blame. What we want to know is every single solitary thing that went wrong, large and small, that might have contributed to this accident. Because it's not just one cause. 
when we had a lot of accidents going on 30 years ago, I used to, I was still doing broadcasting. I would roll out of bed sometimes at 3 a.m. in the morning, and I could do 45 seconds just from memory without even knowing the facts of what had happened on the basis that there was never just one cause in an airline accident. And what sometimes it appears that you could say, this is obviously what happened. There were contributing factors. Even if a pilot makes a terrible mistake at the last minute, what was his or her mental attitude? What had their previous 72 hours been like? What had their training been like? There was always more than one layer you could pull back to get to the truth of it. Now, when you translate this into corporate life and into the business of running a business, one of the most important aspects is that everything that goes wrong, large or small, is a message from the underlying system. And if you're deaf to that message, or you don't have a systemic ability, or you're a leader who just basically pushes that away and says, I expect perfect performance, you're not going to be anywhere near as effective. And you may be disastrously ineffective because you're not going to pick up those lessons. So it's one of the greatest aspects of what we have learned to do. And we're learning in medicine, but it's bringing over from the aviation industry and from nuclear power generation and from the building trades is this idea that we've got to look for every message the underlying system sends. You remember the Challenger accident in the first space shuttle that we lost. That was a result of many different factors, but one of the key elements was the inability of the system and individuals in it to listen to a voice from the wilderness, actually from Utah, trying to say, hey, it's too cold to launch. But because they were not used to listening to messages based on anything that had gone wrong in the past, they were deaf to it. And we saw the result. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to address this from two angles, right? One is the systems angle, that what is it that we can do on a systemic level? And the second yes. thing is the leadership angle, because what you earlier said about shouting and blaming, what we don't realize as leaders is by shouting and blaming, we think that we are making something better. But when we actually make the human system worse, more prone yep. to errors and mistakes, right? Can you share a little bit about the leadership element there? And then expand on the systems and processes, right? What are those systems and how do you put into place? Maybe share a few examples. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. First of all, from a leadership position, a good leader is also a follower. A good leader basically sets an atmosphere in which people want to succeed. And as a matter of fact, even as a young Air Force officer, I remember coming up to our command post in Yokota, Japan, once this is during Vietnam. And uh, my guys had caught the early bus. And uh, so they were all out. I'm the aircraft commander. They're already out there in the field doing what they need to do to prepare the airplane. I'm walking up to the command post and a lieutenant colonel says, a little late, aren't you, Colonel Nance? I said, or at that time, Captain Nance. And uh, I said, yeah. I said, I'm their leader. Which way did they go? <laughs> he thought that was a terrible thing to say. I think it, it's the exact right thing to say because you trust your people. You have deployed them correctly. It's always a constant battle of getting the right people in the right place and nurturing them. If that's the case, you don't need to be out there in the lead telling everybody what to do when they already know the job. You trust them. So I'm their leader. Which way did they go is second only in my mind to the, the wonderful phrase of exactly when did I lose control? <laughs> it's very important to me in translating this to all other elements, and certainly in business, to say that when you are in a position of leadership, your job is to extract, orchestrate, and apply all the human talent that is entrusted to you. And that's a different definition. You don't hear that very often in essence or in philosophy terms or philosophical terms from masters of business administration schools. And yet that really is the essence of it. How well 
Can you take the human talent entrusted to you, energize it, focus it, and apply it? That's the measure of a true leader. Now, when you put this in the context of what we've learned in aviation in terms of safety and what we're trying desperately to infuse into medicine and not terribly successfully lately with COVID, what you end up seeing is that on a systemic basis, you've got to have a structure in which people are free to speak up, free to immediately pull the emergency stop on anything that who feel empowered as part of a team. And I, there's a phrase that I use, and it's only mine. Everybody has different definition, pardon me, definitional ways of saying the same thing. But to my mind, a good team, whether it's a company that's 10,000 strong, or whether it's just a small office or anything in between, it's a situation where you've got, you need basically a collegial interactive team. Collegial because everybody on the team has respect for everybody else or they wouldn't be there. And of course, this has to be set by the leader. This is incumbent upon the leader to set that atmosphere. But mutual respect all across the board, no matter how long you've been in the saddle, no matter how many degrees you have, the, for instance, in a medical unit down in Houston, Texas, and I won't go into the names, but basically there was a very famous doctor who made a great point of saying that even if you're a brand new nurse wobbling in the door, wide-eyed and scared to death because of the, the gravitas of this team, you're the most important person in the room because you bring new knowledge. So being able to have that transparency of uh, purpose, have the ability to make everybody not just feel that they're a part of the team, but that they are a responsible part of the team is incredibly important. That's the collegial aspect. Collegial interactive teams. Interactive means that no one of that team, thanks to your leadership, would hesitate to speak up if they saw, heard, felt, or even intuited that something was wrong. That is a constant battle to get people to stay at that level and to get them to that level to begin with. But it's so incredibly important. So systemically, a large or small operation, a leader has an incumbent responsibility to create that type of team with transparent communication and collegiality. And if you don't, again, you're not going to be operating at the highest level. You might achieve a lot, but you're not going to be able to get the best out of people if you're doing a Jack Welch type of thing and just yelling at everybody. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Can you expand a bit on your work with the medical industry? Because another thing which as human beings, we don't like is somebody telling us what to do, right? So yep. there is a yep. psychological resistance we face to somebody else, especially an outsider coming in. And that many times stops us from changing or even asking for help. So how has your work been received? What are some of the challenges that you have faced and how have you found ways to overcome that? Those are all excellent questions. Uh, and if I don't answer this correctly, it will sound grandiose. I've only had the opportunity to affect certain companies and certain operations. And most of it stemming, as I say, from our experience in aviation and nuclear power generation. But uh, really, it becomes almost universal. And so the times that I think I've had the most are the people who are doing what I'm doing to have had the most impact is when you've been able to get to the leadership, the board of directors, especially, and what we call the C-suite, especially in medicine, that's a common term. The CEO, the COO, the CFO, especially, as well as the board, and get them to reorient their thinking into whatever it is they need to take care of that they're not taking care of. And believe me, right now, hospitals all over the world are in a lot of trouble in many different ways. But in the United States, especially, and to a certain extent, our Canadian friends, we are in a bit of disarray in terms of what the heck we're doing in healthcare. 
Let me talk about that just for a second, and we'll get back on the mainstream. Mm -hmm. The reason for a hospital is to serve the community. Matter of fact, they're licensed based on that. And yet, because in this great nonprofit system, there is a profit-making group of several different companies that have for-profit hospitals and clinics, and that's fine. But the nonprofit group very often are lying to themselves. They say they're nonprofit, and yet they're concerned so much about the bottom line. But when it's positive and they're making a lot of money, what are they doing with that money? They're investing in new buildings and new campus and a citadel over here and over there when they should be fine-tuning what they're able to do with what they've got. And I see this illness as part of the constant myopia in American medicine, which is, by the way, not a system. I'm not the one to say that. George Halverson, who used to run a company called Kaiser Permanente, said that. That we don't have a system of medicine in the United States. We have a great non-system of wonderful people, wonderful parts, great science, great institutions, but it's never been put together. And because we don't have a single payer, and because we have this cacophony of which some people can go bankrupt because they've had medical bills they can't pay, the idiocy of this is also extrapolated to the, the impact on the psyche of the doctors and the nurses and all the people involved because they've got to keep the doors open, they've got to keep the money flowing, and pretty soon the determination of what needs to be done is a monetary determination and not a medical one. We can change that, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, but we're going to have to pay attention to it. We have actually, we're the laughing stock of the world in the United States right now in terms of not having a medical system that makes any sense. And it's not that everyone in the rest of the world has a perfect system, but there are a lot of attributes that we could select from almost like a smorgasbord and, and come up with something that works for the U.S. But we are so locked up in partisanship that I just don't see it happening anytime soon. And people are dying as a direct result. Now, the reason for getting off in that is because what I was trying to apply and am trying to apply is safety. In other words, if you don't have patient safety, what do you have? If you're going to kill your patient because you've got the wrong site surgery, for instance, or you had the wrong medication, and there are a thousand different variations of this, then you have no quality at all. I used to say to boards, see their eyes go wide open. You may have a quality committee, but you haven't even touched safety. Quality and safety are not the same thing. They're inextricably intertwined, but they are not the same thing. So to get that lesson and to apply it, the first thing that an organization has to do from the very top, and as I say, the board is incredibly important on this, is to try to reorient their thinking to what are the most important elements that you have to bring to the community because you're operating under a license? Is it building new buildings? I'll give you an example. Hospital in the south of Chicago, rather. Chicago, as you're probably aware, as most people I think are aware, is a really dangerous place in some parts of the south side. Tremendous gang activity, drug activity. The police can't keep up with it. I was working with a board and, and with a senior leader of this hospital, and all of a sudden, realized that the building that I'd seen under glass in the lobby, the model, was what they were getting ready to build for $150 million because they needed new operating rooms. And when I asked the CEO, I said, "What? where's the influx? That Are you spilling out of your ORs now? He said, oh, no, but we've got such gang activity and we get so many emergency runs in here, so many gunshot wounds that we're ramping this up. And one of the people I was with on my team basically said, did you ever consider taking 20 or maybe $40 million out of that $140 million price tag and paying it to the police to try to increase the presence and to decrease the number of people that need to be brought in here to the emergency room? 
you thought I'd grown a third head. I mean, he, the man, eyes got big. He had no idea what I was talking about. The idea of somehow reaching in and stemming the flow of problems uh, just it never occurred to him. And of course, it was dismissed immediately. We, we've got myopic thinking in every industry. I think medicine is a terrible example right now. But in, in most corporations, it's not just me. I think anybody with my philosophy that people are first can go into almost any corporate activity anywhere in the world and improve at least 50% of them to, to the degree of probably increasing profit and decreasing loss almost immediately. And let me give you another example that I'm working on right now. Uh, this is a book that, that will be out hopefully by September called The Nine Lives at Crystal Global, which was a company that started in Saudi Arabia. It's a book about the founder, Talal al-Sha'ir. He's not a member of the royal family. His father was a general. He's a very responsible individual. But as a young man, he got an engineering degree, chemical engineering in the United States and a master's and came back to his country to build something that wasn't just running another factory. And, uh, but in his building of this company, what differentiated him and what differentiated his philosophy was the idea that they were going to be a corporate family. A lot of people say this, you know, coach, it's something that's easy to say and hard to do. And it doesn't mean that you don't have discipline and it doesn't mean that you don't have an HR department. But what it does mean is that instead of considering your employees to be commodities, which I think too many around the world do, you consider the be the reason that the company exists to begin with. It's a team effort. And if it's not, if it's not handled that way, you're never going to get to where you need to go. In his case, his company, as he built it to a worldwide organization, because it became huge, became the number one producer of titanium dioxide, which is the thing we use in white paint. It's a crystalline form, very difficult to produce. He survived at least three times when the company was about to go under because the people rallied and did what was necessary. And that wasn't with a lot of cost cutting. Matter of fact, one of his philosophical elements was that when things get rough, the last thing you want to do if you're on a ship in a storm is throw your bridge crew overboard. But that's what most companies do. They start cutting back. And then all of a sudden, when times get good, they can't ramp up fast enough. Anyway, it's a fascinating story. But the thing that struck me so much is that and in Saudi Arabia, for instance, with Aramco and with Thobic uh, and all the other companies that, that have grown up in petrochemicals and producing oil. And of course, the country, the kingdom sits on a huge amount of oil still. But there's going to become a time when that commodity won't be worth anywhere near what it is today. They know, they are very well aware, the king, the crown prince, very well aware that they have got to morph that country into being able to have industry on a level of production that does not involve petrochemicals, but it's easier said than done. You know, one of the things that I am adamant about after having researched this for years is that they're never going to succeed regardless of how many billions they put into it. They're never going to succeed unless they start treating people, not as commodities, but as team members. And of course that means a tremendous amount of addition to the educational system, which they're working on. Anyway, to pull all that back now to, to your question on a systemic basis and a, and a leadership basis, uh, uh, armed with these basic understandings that you've got to have a team, that you've got to have a collegial interactive team approach, that you've got to have a family approach to your corporate presence in the world, whether it's large or small, armed with that, a good manager who cares about people can make incredible inroads in just about any business that isn't already doing that. And it's a bit of a renaissance in thinking, I think, but I've yet to be proven wrong or even see that I've got to 
revise that thinking. I'm sorry, I probably went too far afield in too many different areas here, but to focus me, if you will. Yes, yes. I think what I love from what you just shared is that how you start at the top and that CEO level or the board level clarity on why are we here is so important. And yep. that can translate to that. Yet at the same time, once again, comparing to the airline industry, there is so much of myopic viewpoints, not just in the medical system, but also in how we run our companies, our organizations. Yeah. And I want to understand from you, what is the difference, right? Is it is it that airline disaster is so visible, is so headline making that we take, took action at one point and said that we have to fix this while medical deaths or even corporate, like we don't die, but maybe there's a lot of mental health impact or the loss of productivity. It mm-hmm. doesn't make the headlines, right? So the leadership is still in that thinking, which is basically five decades old, but we are still not making the same amount of action with the same kind of urgency. So comparing it to the aviation industry, what do you see is the difference? Is it that like an airline disaster is so big and nobody can avoid that? That's one element. That was probably the element that uh, they built a fire under our tails in aviation because we wouldn't have an airline industry if we had continued along the lines we were. Now, what happened in the late 70s and early 80s, and mainly because of the accident in 1977 in Tenerife that involved KLM and Pan Am, it killed 583 people. And may it always be the worst accident in history. You know, hopefully we never exceed it. That started a change that by 1982 had become a course that was called crew resource management. Actually, it started with cockpit leadership resource management. It morphed into basically the idea of trying to say to a crew several major things. First of all, you are looking at a first officer at that time, a second officer, flight engineer. You are co-equally responsible for the safety of everybody on board this airplane and everyone over whom we fly. You are co-equally responsible. Of course, the junior member is saying, what can I do? The captain's not going to listen to me. Yeah, he will now because we're retraining him. And if he's not going to listen, he's not going to be a captain at this airline. That took us only about four years to get this instilled. It was amazing because it was a complete change from the idea that the captain was God and uh, you didn't talk back to him, etc. And you had to be very careful what you said to him to one in which you're judged as a captain. You're not going to keep your four stripes. If you tell your co-pilot, when I want your advice, I'll ask for it. It was a complete renaissance in thinking. And although it seems like we're only talking about the cockpit culture, it had a huge impact. The reason that we had to do that in United Airlines was basically the ones who founded that course and then it spread everywhere. The reason we had to do that was because every time we have a big screw up, a lot of people die. And it's simply true that no one out there really on a regular basis wants to climb on an aluminum tube and go into a hostile environment, but they have to do so because it's become a major part of our lives, business-wise especially, but even personal around the world. So if that's the case and we can't educate everybody that gets on board as to what those strange noises are that they hear. For instance, if you've ever flown an Airbus A320, when a hydraulic system on the ground starts, it sounds like somebody's sawing something down below. I don't know why they did that, but Boeing doesn't make those noises, by the way. I'm a little bit prejudiced. But uh, when you look at, at the change that we had, it was understandable that in about 1988, there would be a big meeting in Washington, D.C., in which the vice president of the U.S. had called all the leaders he could and anybody, including at my level, to, together to talk about where the safety system was. And there was a lot of backslapping. Look at the progress we've made. Look how far we've come. We were already 
affecting the action of rape. And a, a very wise gentleman by the name of Dr. John Lauber, who had been a member of the National Transportation Safety Board and had been one of the founders of a reporting system that has become very important called the NASA Ames Reporting System, where people can make reports anonymously and yet they're protected from FA retaliation, if there's any such to be had. He's, he got up to the dais and said, I'm the keynote today, and I had a nice speech all prepared. I'm throwing it away. He said, I'm really upset. I walked all the way through this hall, and I heard three different conversations, and they were all the same conversation, and it was like this. We've made such incredible progress. Look what good boys we are. But this is a very technologically complex industry. And we know we're never going to get to zero accidents. There's always going to be a statistical noise level of accidents down there. And John said, we got to stop that thinking right here, right now. If you don't believe in zero, that we can get to zero, we're never going to get close because we're always going to be tolerating this certain low level. And we're not going to take the extra mileage it takes to be able to stop it. The same principle, by the way, in medicine All right now, we're trying to teach leaders and doctors, especially the, yes, we can get to zero negative impact on patients, but it takes understanding these principles. Anyway, he was so prescient in what he said, and he tied it to a Boeing engineer who had stayed up late one night working through some formulas and had startled himself by saying, oh my God, here we are in 88. If in 30 years, we haven't improved this percentage, this tiny little percentage of accidents, that's going to expand to dropping about three to four 747s every week. And we're not going to have an industry. And I tell you what, for one particular situation to have that much effect over time on an industry that employs hundreds of thousands was just really amazing to see. But that was the beginning of our trek to zero. And we are, if we're not there, we're so close. But the beauty of it is that no one in this industry, no CEO, will get by with any more, or our board is going to get by with any more saying, we've got a sufficient safety system. It's never sufficient. And the other point is, and I have to make this to pilots all the time, you may achieve perfect safety, but you can't rest on your laurels because the way we achieved it is by balancing a little ball bearing on the top of a perfectly spherical inverted bowl. You've got to watch it all the time because if you look away and it starts down one side or another, you start, for instance, cutting back on your bear stocks or things like generators at outstations, or you cut back a little bit on your training, or you make a few allowances over here to save money. You're on a track to yeah. disaster. Yeah. And for other industries where you don't have that same level of drastic, dramatic visibility, what are the lessons for the leaders? What is your message for the leaders to not get caught up in that myopic thinking and to think beyond that and make yeah. change? The first thing is to make a corporate assumption that you do not know what you need to know yet. And you want to go to the front lines. It's hard to get them to talk. And if you just put a suggestion box, the old suggestion box, it's not going to happen. You've got to aggressively go after your people and say, you're co-equally responsible for everything that goes on here. I need your counsel. Maybe all we're talking about is the bolt that you turn on the assembly line. But I need to know what that bolt means. I need to know if there's any problems with the tools. We need to know at the top. It's, there was an old thing called management by walking around. That's not enough. You got to have management by sitting around. You got to go down and spend some time. If you're the lead, leader, absolutely. You cannot spend your time just listening to your lieutenants. You've got to go to the source as well. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you micromanage and run the factory from the factory floor, but what it does mean is whether you're running an airline, whether you're running a hospital, you've got to struggle constantly to find out what's really happening on the front lines and to make sure that your system and your people are able to adjust to that. And that means communication. And it also means being very harsh with HR because HR can, a good professional HR team is invaluable, but they can also decide that it is up to them to run the company because the company is incompetent and will get themselves in legal trouble if they don't. A good CEO has to sit down with the director of HR and say, your position is very tenuous. The minute we start seeing you attempting to run this place, rather than being the advisor, we got a problem. Same thing for the in-house counsel. As an attorney, I can tell you, I want to see a CEO who sits down with lawyers and says, Bill, Jim, John, your counsel is, is absolutely and incredibly important, but you give us your advice and then you shut up. Okay. Because we're the ones that make the decision. So it is not up to you to steer this corporation beyond giving us the advice that if we do A, B, or C, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. You said your piece, we've listened. Now we make the decision. If you want to make the decision, you become the CEO or a member of the board. And the reason is because good lawyers always want to get everything exactly right, just like an engineer does. And if you let him or her, they will end up trying to run the organization for you and making decisions that sometime, for instance, in a hospital, you've got somebody suing the hospital. It's time to say, we messed up. We're not going to put that person through five years of hell. We're going to settle this right now, regardless of what the attorney is saying. I'm just giving you a tiny little snippets. But the thing is, a leader to lead has got to have information. You're never going to have enough, but you've always got to struggle for that. You've got to let your people know where your head is. Always listening. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing that. And you, we have spoken about the medical industry. We have spoken yeah. about the corporate world, but there are many areas of how we do things which are broken, not to mention the education system. And that how when we start working, we do not have that role models for a long period of time yeah. until we start to fail and start to become mature. And many times those habits are reinforced at that early age when yeah. you find it that, and that, that creates friction to change or to evolve. Right. My next question to you would be, what is your message for the common people, right? For the employee or for, let's say, a common citizen, make it aware for the CEO or even to the governments, even to the, to the presidents and the prime ministers, bring in change because there's a lot at stake, right? Just because something is yep. not visible doesn't mean that lives are not getting lost. What can we do on a systemic front, right? What can the common man do to make it evident for, so that the, Change comes from the top to bottom, as you mentioned. I think the first thing you have to do is say, and this is not just from the top, this is everybody. If you're going to work in a company and you're going to be a part of the company, a family member of the company, and the company is not only going to care about you, but you've got to care about the company, which means just like we had to say to our junior officers in flight, you're co-equally responsible. It's maybe a whole new idea because you've never had this kind of position before. You've never had people asking you questions like that. You just want to come in do your job and go home. That's fine, but go someplace else because if you're going to work here, we need your information on what and what you feel. We want it done respectfully. We want it done in an orderly fashion, but we do not ever want your voice silenced when you see something that needs to be reported. Now, it, that's part of the process of binding together a company. One of the things that, and I, we've all experienced this, either vicariously or, or directly, 
a company that puts out a house organ, maybe it's a monthly magazine, maybe it's something like that. And it may be slick and beautiful, but it really isn't aimed at the people. It's aimed someplace else. The first airline I worked for called Braniff International, which let's say failed in 1982, was a, it was the first airline to paint airplanes garish colors and to even have an artist come in and, and paint and use it as a canvas. Leather seats and departure lounges. We did that. We're the ones who started that. You see a lot of innovations that Braniff came up with. But when they put a magazine out, they were talking to the world and they weren't talking to us. And sometimes it got ridiculous. In 1976, I think it was, they came out with a thing called Braniff Ultra Service. Now, that's all well and good. And the flight attendants especially were standing by to find out what exactly this ultra service was. Six months after they unveiled this and put it as a major part of their multi-million dollar advertising campaign, somebody said, oh, maybe we ought to bring the people in on this. They were, he means someplace out there. And when we finally found out what it was that people were expecting when they picked up on this ultra service thing, then we were able to do it. But for six months, the company flopped around and people were making a joke of it in the, in the general community as well as it was the people in the airline. We only had 12,000 people. It's nothing compared to the size of some of the mega carriers today, United, Delta, American, KLM, British Air. But, uh, but still, you've got to communicate to people. If you're going to have a team effort, it has to be constant. So for the individual rank and file, if what you want is a job where you come in and punch a time card, say nothing to anybody and do your job and go home, that's fine. There are many of them out there, but you're not going to be an asset to a company that has any enlightened view as to what a neural network means. Having a neural network, and that's really a bastardization of the term, the idea being that you can talk and correspond all across the company. And you don't, you, you feel as empowered as an individual sleeping out the floor at midnight as a janitor as the CFO does. That's hard to achieve, but it's the goal. Thank you, John. So we have spoken about two things, right? One is leadership, seeing your employees as team members, as partners. And we have spoken yep. about systemization and bringing in those elements, which are so important, right? And regulation is also a big part of that. So can you, yeah. can you draw the balance, right? Because at one level, these two can sound contrary to each other, right? So having systems, having processes can seem as infringing on that personal freedom or personal flexibility to move around. So how, as a leader, you draw that balance of bringing in systems, bringing in very like step-by-step -step processes, and then allowing people their own freedom, their own flexibility in their areas of responsibilities. I think the biggest challenge there is, and I really hate this phrase, but I'm not sure what else to use, walk the talk. In other words, if you're going to say as a leader, in any position, whether you're a sub leader or whether you're the top guy uh, or gal, that uh, this is the way we're going to do things. It, it indeed needs to be the way you do things. Because if there's a, an undercurrent running through the populace, and of course, people will always talk and the rumor mill is always going. But if the undercurrent is don't believe them, they say you can speak up and then you get swatted down, you've lost everything you tried to gain. So it really becomes a difficult situation because now, in selecting and nurturing your lieutenant, so to speak, your chief of this, chief of that, director of this, director of that, as well as your senior vice president, you as a leader have got to make sure that their heart is in that same place. And that's tough to do. Many people have read the, the book about Southwest Airlines that Herb Kelleher had come up with. I think it was called Nuts. 
Uh, Herb was a friend of mine and a guy I greatly respected. He was a fellow lawyer from Texas. And for a Texas lawyer to understand so much about human nature was really quite extraordinary. I can say that partially as a joke to poke at my fellow attorneys, but by the same token, it's true because as a lawyer, you're thinking in different terms. Herb saw this company as a marvelous opportunity to have fun and to provide a tremendous service. And the way he did it in terms of binding people to him was by making sure that everything was possibly good. If he said, this is the way we're going to do things, he was going to reward the people who worked the hardest to make that happen, but he was going to do it by example. Herb was a guy out there at midnight throwing bags on an airplane without announcing that he was there. No photographers around, nobody making a big deal of it. If something needed to be done, he went out and did it. So he was, he lived the example. And this is an important point, I think, especially for middle-level managers. If you're not living what you're saying, you're a fraud. People are going to look at you as a fraud. They're not going to listen to you. And the rumor mill, they may be kind to you directly, and the company may be kind to you over time, but you're not performing what's needed. You really need to be the example. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing that. And I think this directly leads to trust, the word that you used in the beginning, and that how, when we do not lead the talk, when we do not walk the talk, we think that it is not visible, but it is always visible. People can always oh, see yeah. And even though they might not say it, they, they have lost that trust and you have lost your leadership in that moment because the title doesn't give you that leadership. It's that trust, which gives mm -hmm. you that leadership and authority over, over somebody else. So thank you for sharing that. And also, as we begin to wrap it up, I want to highlight once again, back to your career, to your long journey. How have your views on leadership evolved? And what would be your message for the leaders of today, especially for the next, say, for the coming century, for the coming many decades? As you can imagine, especially being a military officer, even though I was flying airplanes for the most part and not flying a desk, I still look back at that period of time and I wonder constantly, did I do it right? What could I have done better? How could I have been a better leader as an aircraft commander, as commander on particular things over time in the Air Force and then the Air Force Reserve? And it becomes a cautionary tale in this regard. You're not free if you're intellectually honest with yourself, and I think I am. You're not free to basically gloss over the past. If this is the way you look at things today, that we've got to have a familial aspect, that you've got to be leading people by example, et cetera, then you need to go back and look in your own mind. What did I do and how did I vary and how did I change my opinion? Getting into the heart of safety, both in airlines and in medicine, is really focused me tremendously on the things that I didn't do right, the things that I wouldn't have done if I had all of a sudden been the head of a big company. And, and it's jarring at times because you realize that, well, wait a minute, I formulated these new ideas, but this is new to me too. And I think it's new to most people in business. We're Most people, especially in leadership positions, are mission-oriented. Not all, but mission orientation. We know that well in the military and in the Air Force and the airlines because give us a mission, we'll forget about eating, we'll forget about sleeping, we'll just work on getting it done. And that's a good attribute. But by the same token, you've got to realize where that leads at times. And, and it leads to the ability to say, yeah, we're going to get the team together, we're going to do all this. And this. Why didn't you anticipate that before? You need to look at the way you always did it to be able to do it better in the future. Matter of fact, that's what I say to medicine and doctors and nurses and hospitals all the time. The most dangerous phrase in medicine, not just in America, but all over the world is, quote, this is the way we've always done, end quote. That's the most dangerous phrase in just about 
anything, any walk of life. I would love, for instance, to be able to affect the educational system, but they simply aren't organized enough. There's not enough money to support the changes that are necessary. And so we have over 70 years in the United States, sunk lower and lower with respect to the quality of our public education. And it shows we've got a body politic. They can't make a decision because half of them don't understand, for instance, what a representative democracy is. In a company, you've got the capability of focusing people and educating them as well as educating yourself. But to get back to the original part of your question, I think it really, it's always a personal journey, but you need to be very honest with yourself. No, I would have, I would have understood this. I talk about one situation that occurred to me, as a matter of fact, it would have been fatal. I had a crew member, a very young, brand new crew member who spoke up because we had changed our methodology in the late eighties to saying to people or to ourselves, my most important task as an aircraft commander, when I come in and meet my crew is to bind them into a team. That wasn't the way it was in Vietnam back in the seventies. It was a matter of coming in and saying, I'm the commander and here's what I want you to do. I completely changed over that period of time. And this really does impact uh, the way I look at the world, the way I look at, uh, at corporate, the way I've worked on this book and the way it'll be presented. It's just important to understand that change is a change between a structure that is controlling things and a philosophy. I would say that basically what we're trying to do in any situation is create a philosophy with the strategy beneath that and with tactics at the very bottom. But if you don't know philosophically what it is that you stand for, you're not going to get it done. I don't, I ramble there a little bit and I apologize, but, but that's one of the most important elements to me is being honest with yourself about what I would have done 20 years ago versus what I see, what I know now. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing. And I think that sums it up very nicely, right? Because what you mentioned is looking inwards, that self-reflection. And seeing this as a personal journey and because so many times as leaders, we are looking outwards, right? We are looking at what to do or what to fix or whom to fix that we forget yeah. to look inside that. And also thinking about that, what am I might be doing that this is the condition in my organization, right? So easy to ask, sure. why is my organization or why are my people this way? Rather than asking what I might be doing or how I might be behaving that this is the outcome that I have. And I yep. think that's a huge place of vulnerability and also courage for each of us to go there and to really find our own answers and then grow and evolve on the journey. And you're so right to mention the word courage, because it does take that. It takes courage that, that you're doing it the right way, even though you were not used to doing it this way. And it takes courage to basically turn to your people. It takes a lot of courage to say, what do I do that you like best? Do you have the tools to do your job? What can I do to better the situation for you and make it easier for you to do your job? And what don't you like? To get honest answers to people takes a while, but to ask that question, it takes courage. You're absolutely right. Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing your insights. Thank you for sharing a part of your journey with us and for everything you. that you shared with us today. Before we end, anybody who might be listening and who wants to reach out or find out more about what you are up to, what is the best way for them to do so? Like everybody these days, I think even beggars on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere, I have the usual website, but there is a free book on the other side of that. One of the corporate books that I, I wrote about a gentleman named Harold Simmons, who was a billionaire down in Texas. So if you go to www.johnjnanth.com and then forward slash free book, it'll take you to the heart of my thing there. And I basically have been very flattered by the number of people who've signed up just to receive a little information. I don't inundate people with it. And I do not sell the list ever. 
Thank you. Thank you, John, for sharing everything that you have shared. Thank you for your wonderful you. careers, for your service, and for everything that you continue to do and that you will continue to do in the future. And I want to wish you all the best for that. Thank you, Sumit. Thank you very much for the opportunity here. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that wraps up another inspiring episode of the Visionary Voices series on the Choosing Leadership podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation and find value in this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us reach more people and share these transformative insights with a wider audience. Remember, leadership is about continuous practice and not just about intellectual knowledge. And we love hearing from all of you. So feel free to reach out and share your thoughts, questions, and takeaways. Thank you for listening to Choosing Leadership. Always remember that you are enough, you are loved, and you matter. This is Somit, and until the next time, keep choosing leadership.